0: Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks, the editor of Ugly Things Magazine. This is part two of a special two part interview with the great singer, notorious Hellraiser, and ace storyteller, PJ Proby. In part one, Proby talked about his early years in Hollywood as Jet Powers, cutting demos for Elvis Presley, and being signed to Liberty Records as a singer and Metric Music as a songwriter. When we left off last time, it was early 1964, and he'd just arrived in England for an appearance on the TV special Around the Beatles. He was only supposed to be there for two weeks, but found himself with an unexpected top five single on his hands. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend you do so before proceeding with this one. This time, it's Torn Velvet and Bloody Ponytails, as we talk about Proby's adventures and misadventures in England, 1964-66. The riotous live performances, the torn trousers, the headlines, the fistfights, the lawsuits, the drinking, and of course, the music. We'll also get into his second Hollywood phase in 1966-67, including the making of his biggest hit record, "Nicky Hokey." Hope you enjoy our conversation. I just wanted to talk about when you first arrived in the UK. I mean, you'd never been to England before. Um, it, things were just sort of starting to take off there, but I don't even know if you had any particular idea about what the music scene was like there. What were your thoughts? What was your state of mind You know, when you got there? Did you sort of see this as a big opportunity? Did you recognize that like, now is your time to kind of step up and do it?
1: No, no, no. I was only hired for 15 days to uh, come over and do the Beatles special. And so I was just hired to do that and uh, get paid and go back home. But uh, when I got here, we did the special, and during the time, uh, Jack Good took me in the studio and recorded me with uh, the song Hold Me, which was an old Vic Damone song that I put together. I mean, uh, old, uh, not Vic Damone. Uh,
0: uh, Dick Haynes.
1: Dick Haynes Dick song. I put together and um, I kind of put a Beatle feel to it. And so I just went and recorded that and I thought nothing of it. I even had a bet with the Beatles it wouldn't be a hit. I ended up having to pay them. <laughs> and I just went on back to the States. When I, when I did the record, Jack introduced me to uh, Dick Rowe or something like that from Decca Records. Right. And uh, the guy who turned down the Beatles. Yeah. And. uh... He uh, said he wanted to sign me to Decca, and I said I'm already signed to Liberty, but I think I can get out of the contract because they hardly ever use me. They just use me as a writer at Metric Music. Right. And so, uh, so I signed a contract for Decca, and uh, I said, but uh, let me go back to L.A. now and uh, get my release, and uh, don't don't release the record until I let you know. I've got my release. And so I went back, and the next day I was on my way to to Al Bennett's office uh, to get my release, Uh, or maybe it was a week later. And I went to Al's office, and um, Al Al was behind his desk. And uh, I said, Al, I'd like to uh, get a release from my recording contract and just uh, be a writer, an in-house writer here, because y'all won't really do anything with me. And he said, P.J., do I look like a damn fool? <laughs> I said, no. And then I noticed on his desk was Billboard magazine. And he said, you can't go around signing. You're with Decca Records now. You can't go around signing contracts with other companies when you're signed to one company, and like, like you're changing your socks or something. He said, uh, I see you're number three in the charts with a red bullet. Climbing, so I said, "Well, you know, it was news to me." And uh, he said, "Here's what we're going to do." I said my lawyer and I, Sai Zucker. You met Cy here, haven't you? And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, we're going to come over and sue you and Decca Records. And uh, after I've sued you, and we've left the, uh, you know, the, the wherever you go, the offices." Uh, I'm going to take you to dinner and buy you a steak and lobster dinner. And uh, you can have my room up at the top of the hotel. And uh, I said, I've already got a place to live over there, Al. I don't need a place to live. And uh, he said, well, I'll buy you dinner anyway, because you're going to lose the case. And uh, so I just uh, went back to the hotel and called uh, a guy I knew, Martin Davis, who wanted to manage me, and I, wouldn't let him and he said yeah yeah, you're number three in the charts if you come i've got you booked with uh, adam faith at the albert hall and uh if you come back over here i'll pay for pay for your way back if you'll let me manage you so we agreed to that and the next day i was on a plane and over here and uh liberty sued me and i went to that dinner with al Bennett and had the lobster and steak and uh, and I took the 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 uh, room at the top. It was like an apartment house, and uh, huge, huge place. And I already had a place to live, so I put my boys who worked for me in there. And they didn't come back for a week. They were hot and cold running women sent up there. <laughs> uh, and when they got back, they weren't even worth working. They were they were all pussy whipped. <laughs> and uh, so. That was way, how I got over here.
0: Right. So the live show. How did you go about putting that together? Because you really, I don't think anyone in England had seen that kind of live show.
1: I, I looked around and I saw everybody was a five-piece group, and I've never liked five-piece groups. I've always had uh, larger, uh, a larger brass section, and so I, I, I went and down to Bogner Regis and advertised, and I got. Uh, sax and trombone and trumpet from Bogner regis and i got drummer uh i got a whole whole orchestra from from Bogner regis
0: why, why Bogner regis of all places
1: well it's because i i knew my hairdresser was from there and he knew all these people <laughs> yeah he went to school with them
0: <laughs> what was your hairdresser's name
1: uh my hairdresser's name was barry benson
0: and then, as far as repertoire, how did you you know? Was it stuff that you'd been doing back in Hollywood?
1: Yeah, it's stuff I'd done in nightclubs and everything. It's a a lot of James Brown stuff because James Brown hadn't been heard of over here yet, right? And uh, a lot of Bo Diddley stuff, a lot of uh, all the blues boys.
0: Yeah, I know you told me like the the Lloyd Price song question. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Lloyd. Yeah,
0: I like Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu and and
1: yeah,
0: right. That stuff, yeah. And so tell me about how that went. And then, you know, along with the band and the material, what about the the actual stage show, the presentation? How'd you go about putting that together?
1: Well, I'd, I'd always moved like that on the stage. I always moved like a colored boy, using the whole stage, not just standing there in one spot and shaking my hair. Yeah. Like all the rest of them did. No, I used the whole stage and boogied all over the place, just like James Brown. Right and they had never seen that over here, and they went crazy, the audience.
0: Right. So you had something right away.
1: Yeah. they had never never seen an act that... And Jagger and all of them had never, had never even seen... Well, they'd, they'd seen it in, in America, but they'd never seen it here. And Jagger took all of his movements off me. Tom Jones took his movements off me. Everybody did.
0: Was it really the debut of the show? Was that really the Albert Hall show when you... Uh when Adam Faith was yeah. on top of the bill. Can you tell that story?
1: Yeah, I, I was doing, I was, it was, um, what was his name now? It was his show.
0: But Was it Adam, um, Adam
1: Faith, right? Adam Faith. It was Adam's show, and um, I just had a spot on it. So the velvets that I wore on stage, I had them made up, but at the first I had them made in silk. And that night at, at the Albert Hall, I had my silk, white uh pants they showed up <clears throat> and uh the white buckle shoes and the shirt never showed so that was the first time also that um i met my hairdresser and um it just it just got very late and so i was really going crazy with, with the shirt didn't show up yeah it was on made on the order of the paul newman shirt that i from Warner Brothers and brought over here, and it was kind of like a peasant's shirt, pirate shirt, you know, yeah, um with the big bulging sleeves and tight at the wrists, and uh it didn't show up, so uh, this woman I was dating said here what what we'll do is well uh i said i'm I'm gonna go on with no shirt at all I'm just going to go on in a t shirt and they'd never seen that the audience or anything and <laughs> So she said, "Let's split split it at the seams and tack it together, so that when you move, and I was pretty muscular then, said so it'll split at the seams." And so uh, I said, "Okay." So she split my my t-shirt at the seams, and I went I went on to to the stage. Before I got on the stage, I said, "Ladies and gentlemen," I said before I start, I'm about to come out there and see you guys, but before I start. I got to tell you I've got my pants on, I got my shoes on, and I got no shirt. I'm a, I'm damn near buck naked. And the <laughs> big roar went up in the crowd and everything. And So I went on that night and with the, just a t-shirt and the pants and the, nobody'd ever gone on stage in a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. So I got through about 5 or 6 numbers and they rushed the stage at the Albert Hall. that had never been done. They rushed the stage. And were up there trying to get me and everything and uh a policeman ran me back down the uh corridor and threw me in a in a toilet <laughs> and uh while I was, while he was taking me down there, somebody grabbed my ponytail, which wasn't real then because my hair hadn't grown out, and it was bobby pinned to my scalp, and they tore the ponytail out and they tore half my scalp with it <laughs> oh, so when I got in the, in the toilet, uh, the door opened again, and this cop's arm came in there. And he said, here, I think this belongs to you. And it was all my hair and blood everywhere. <laughs> and so that's that's what happened. It went down great. Adam, face manager, uh, never spoke to me again, because Adam didn't go on for about an hour when he was supposed to go on. Um <laughs> uh, because the the whole place was in a an uproar, and I made headlines the next day. I was the only one that made headlines the next day. <laughs> right, there was no way. So you that could was that, that was the beginning of. <laughs> in one night, I had a career going.
0: Right. And then you had a follow-up to hold me together,
1: kind of in the same way. Oh mood. yeah, yeah. I, I put, I put, I, I had the follow-up to hold me. I put another classic together. We we strolled the lane together, and kind of wrecked it like I did hold me. <laughs> yeah. And um, the funniest thing on hold me, I was on a television show promoting it, and I uh, can't remember what it was, but I, it had to be voted on, and. On the panel that night, as a voter, was Dick Hames, the original singer of "Homie." Oh wow! Who who sang it? The the first way we stroll the lane together, after the rain together. You know, and here I'd (laughs) gone. We stroll the lane together. Here I'd wrecked his song. And after we were in the in the green room having drinks and everything, I went up to Dick and I said, please, Dick. I said, I'm so proud, pl- pleased to meet you. You were one of my, my heroes growing up. I said, I'm sorry I wrecked your song. He said, no, no, PJ, you didn't wreck my song. I said, you just did it the way things are done today. I had to do it my way in my day. Everything in my day was all ballads. And he said, I like the way you've done it. And I said I, I couldn't believe it. Here was Dick Haynes telling me he liked the way I had done his record.
0: He got it. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the result of the lawsuit? Because uh, you did, you know, Together was also on Decca, and then the album was on Liberty. After that. Yeah. So how well, did the lawsuit did that shake out?
1: Well, they they sued uh, Decca, and uh, Decca called me and had me come down to the stu- to the co- company. And uh, said, if, um, "If you'll sign an indemnity, we'll give you all the money that you've made so far and owe me." And I said, "What's an indemnity?" And he said, "Well, it relieves us of all all um, responsibility of you signing with us. It means that you sign knowing well that you were already signed to Liberty Records and you did it on your own, and it uh, alleviates us." And I said, "Sure." So they brought in these huge money bags. It was about a half a million pounds uh, and put them on his desk and and uh, me and uh, Gary Leeds who I brought over from America who turned into the Walker Brothers later yeah, uh, walked out with all these big bags of money and uh, got in a cab and uh, I said Leeds Tell the driver to drive us to an estate agent. So he drove us over to an estate agent's, and uh, I said, "Now go in and tell the estate agent, I want a huge house in Kensington." And I said, "But before that, get him to stop off at a, at a liquor license place and get me some beer here in the in the uh, cab." So we'll drive around until until uh, we go over there this afternoon. We did that, and uh, we drove to the place in Kensington, and we went down this what looked to me like uh, an alleyway, and parked in front of this place. And I said, "What's this?" He said, "This, this is the place." And then the estate agent came out, and I said, "Lady, I don't live in any, any uh, uh, alleyways." but said, "This isn't an alleyway. This is a muse." I said, "What does muse mean? What's a muse?" I'd never heard of Amuse before, and uh, so I learned later that a muse was where they used to have the cows and everything, and deliver the milk to everyone from, from there and everything. And It was actually one of the most expensive places to live. Uh, it was private homes now. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't particularly see anything that I like here on the, on the outside. There's no front yard. There's nothing. And she said, uh, well, why don't you come in and just have a look? So I went in, and I was really surprised how huge it was, and two floors, and uh, it was all decorated and everything. The bedroom was pink with a crystal chandelier over it, and she said uh, the lady that used to live here was a mad woman, and her father was uh, one of the great songwriters, uh, oh, yeah like wrote with Gershwin or something can't remember right now but he was one of this big songwriters and she was very wealthy and he had left her that and uh i walked around the house and she said i'll take all the pictures down i'm sure you don't want those and i said wait a minute those are nice pictures i like them he said have you really looked closely at them i said no she said look closely and i looked closely and one of them was a picture of the gardens in back of buckingham palace with people all over the yard at the party and in the trees and in the bushes and everything you'd see people fucking and everything <laughs> and uh i said my god i didn't i didn't realize that I said no we, they're all a bit weird would you like us to take them down i said no no we'll leave them there i'd like to show other people that <laughs> yeah. so that was it i I the uh, Liberty sued uh, me, and of course they won, and uh, from then on they just took all the costs out of all my recordings. And I never—I was never paid in my life for any recordings I ever made for Liberty. Nothing.
0: Wow. But you gotta keep the money okay. that you got from- Yeah, and every that
1: time guy. I asked, they said, we're still taking the money out that it cost us for the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stand tall just like him.
0: and i'm not afraid at all hey have you had any contact uh, with uh viv prince since uh, those days
1: no Viv. i i hear that he's alive and doing well though
0: yeah he's in portugal last i heard is he yeah wow. <laughs> living on it like an That's orange grape. Yeah, I talked That's to him a three years ago. Uh, yeah, I guess you and him were... and Kim said you and him were palling around a lot back Oh,
1: then. yeah, he lived at the house, lived at my house. Okay. In fact, he was my cook.
0: Oh, yeah, he could cook, huh?
1: Yeah, Kim... <laughs> uh, Viv Prince was my cook for a long time. Did you know the rest of the pretty things at all? Yeah, I used... What was the lead singer's name? Phil May. Phil May, yeah, I knew Phil very well. That's about... He and Phil were the only two I knew because Phil and I were the first guys to ever wear long hair. Oh yeah, yeah. Under no, our waist, not even the Beatles' hair was that long. I'm I'm actually they writing. started growing their hair that long after yeah. me and Phil grew ours really long.
0: I'm I'm actually writing a book about Phil, so um, yeah. Are you? Yeah. If you got any stories about Phil? He was a good friend of mine, and uh, yeah, a big admirer. No, I ne-
1: I never got to run around with him because I went to a party for the pretty things. And uh, I, w- I was there, and this, the uh, Jagger and all of them were there. And uh, Jagger was with uh, Chrissy Shrimpton, Gene Shrimpton's sister. And there was this drunk there bullying her and just making himself obnoxious. And I couldn't understand why uh, Mick Jagger didn't do anything. Yeah. He was there with her. And this guy got so so belligerent with her. He smacked her upside the head. She was bleeding from the mouth. (sighs) And I looked over at Jagger, and he's still doing nothing. He's smiling. I walked up to the guy and just tapped him on the shoulder and knocked him spark out. And Jagger went berserk. He said, you goddamn Americans come over here and and mess up all your way of living. We don't live like that. And I said, that's your girlfriend, man. Why why weren't you taking up for? He said, keep making your own. Business, it's none of your business. And I said, "Well, I've made it my business." I said, "You coming home with me, honey?" And she said, "Yes, I am." And she left. Left Jagger, and Chrissy Shrimpton came home and lived with me for the next month.
0: Wow! Damn!
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that was a
1: was. She, that called, a- she called Jagger when we were in bed. She called Jagger, and Jagger would say, "I'm I'm in bed here with Marianne Faithful." She said, "I'm in bed with P.J. Proby," and I was I was lying there next to you, thinking, "What the hell am I?" Got myself in for <laughs> now trying to use me to make each other jealous. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't
2: love me
1: no more. You don't call me no more. Don't knock on my door. What's made you change? My love for you will
0: last until my life. So, uh, from now on, you're on Liberty, and we talked a little bit about the I Am P.J. Proby album, with the, the one which I love so much. Yeah. Uh, but can we talk a little bit more about Charles Blackwell? What do you remember yeah, about Charles. him? Yeah, what was he like?
1: What he was remember? fantastic. He was uh, so good, I wouldn't use anybody else. And, uh, let's see. Well, I used Charles on the first album, right. and then on the, on the second album... uh EMI took over from Liberty, and uh, they wouldn't hire him. So from then on, I used uh, Ron Richards, right, who used to do uh, the Hollies and everything.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And so that 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 kind of ended my association with uh, Charles.
0: What was Charles like to work with in the studio? I mean, was he because he's perfect. producer and musical director, right? So he's
1: perfect. He was just just like an, uh, another entertainer.
0: So he got it, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and and he knew all the best musicians. He got Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page was only 13 or 14 years old, and he was my rhythm guitar player and back uh, backing up Big Jim Sullivan.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so that was the first time I'd ever met uh, Jimmy. He went on to be what he is today.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was some of his first sessions that he did, yeah. Yeah. Like, and Charles wrote a couple of, songs on the album too i don't know if you remember much about uh you don't love me no more was one
1: yeah charles was a good songwriter
0: yeah um and then one called just call and i'll be there yeah which is uh which is an amazing song because she goes through all these sort of uh key changes and and it really like gets the most out of your range
1: yeah that well that's see charles took the time to to come over to my house or i'd go over to his house and we Worked on all this music and all these songs together before we went in the studio. Uh, very few people that w- would ever work with me like that.
0: Yeah, you can tell that it's you know it really dialed in.
1: Yeah, and we both had the the same taste in music and what would be a success and what wouldn't.
0: Right. So he had a vision for what kind of sound would work for you. Yeah, and and, and must have tailored those songs for you, you know, perfectly. Yeah.
1: He did. Yeah.
0: Can I ask you about a few of the songs on I Am PJ Proby? There's one song on there, that's a big favorite. It's No Good For Me. Gene Chandler had the original version.
1: Oh, yeah you remember anything uh, about
0: that? It's got kind of a, it's almost like a Burt Bacharach kind of arrangement with those kind of staccato horn lines, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I had never heard the Gene Chandler record, but uh, I think Charles Blackwell chose that record for me.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, well, you, you kill it. I mean, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I, I liked it. It was a good song. I'd, I'd never heard that one, actually.
0: Yeah, it could have been written for you. It's amazing. It's better than the Chuck Jackson, uh, the Gene Chandler version
1: um, really? Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, wow. it is. It's no good we
0: meet, I'll Glory of Love on there.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that was an old one that I used to love to sing it. Uh, some, some group had that out in America.
0: Yeah, I forget the name of the group, but yeah, you did the, there's the whole spoken section in the middle. You,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And you you just give it everything. It's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yes, you're way up on top now. And you want to be free. And you feel you're too good, much too good for nobody like me. You're afraid to present me to your friends in your set. But darling, I guess it's best we should part. But how soon you forget the fine, fine things I've done with you and just how little taste of success well that was me and Dean Jack Daniel's oh okay that's that, that was us oh, the <laughs> three from the stage of your fine fine super fine career. i used to be in but front of the microphone dying, with a beer mug of full of bourbon one. and coke <laughs> i if <always> <laughs> you kept it together. together that's amazing was so. amazing the letter came right after i gave you your start Yes, it came from your pen, dear, but not from your heart.
0: Your performances are really the in control. It doesn't sound like you.
1: Yeah, you know. I, I I was singing one time, and Ron Richards, who did, uh, who was my A and R man, and he he also did uh, the Hollies and everybody. We were doing one song. What was it? Uh, Empty words of love. Oh, what kind of fool am I? Oh yeah. And I I came to a part where it said. Uh, I'm singing empty words of love that left me alone like this. And I sang wimpty words of love. <laughs> that whispered wimpty words of love. That left me alone like this, this. And I said, oh, oh, excuse me, like uh, Ron. I'll, I'll do that one again. He said, oh, no, you're not. I said, I'm going to put that out just like you sang it to, to show you what, what happens when you drink too much. said, I'm going to let the public know exactly what you sound like. And he did. (laughs) And it's on there to this day on that album. You do a
0: great version of uh, I'll Go Crazy on that album.
1: Oh, yeah. If you miss I'll Go Crazy, yeah.
0: Yeah, so James Brown was someone you could yeah. you could do him, too.
1: Well, when I, when I first came here to England, James Brown had never been heard of. So I did a bunch of James Brown songs, thinking I could get that style going, and uh, I would be the one. That, that, uh, that, uh, and it wouldn't be James Brown. I'd be the James Brown over here. <laughs> yeah. And the minute, the minute I recorded the album and did those records... James Brown, put, they put his record out over here, and he became a sensation overnight. And so that kind of blew that for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I love the version you do of Lloyd Price's song, Question.
1: Oh, Question, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one I used to do all the time at the nightclubs in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, you, you own that one, I think. It's just really great.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and you, did, you even did a, a Beach Boys song on there. Don't worry, baby. Yeah, was that your choice? Yeah, I,
1: I see, I'd known the Beach Boys long before they were the Beach Boys. They were just a bunch of guys, and we all used to hang around, and, and there was a couple of guys that hung around us called Jan and Dean. Oh, yeah. And, and they, they had a couple of hits out, and uh, they were really going somewhere. And then these other guys uh, did the same thing as Jane, Jan and Dean, got that same sound, and we were all singing down at the beach, and I and I was one of them. And uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the leader of the Beach Boys? Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson turned to me and said one day, "said uh, I was probably Jet Powers in." I uh, said, "Jet, you, you can't be in the group. You can, you're, you're a solo singer. You're not. You're, you're not supposed to hold the notes. You're not supposed to." be... Oh. Or anything. You're supposed to hold a straight note when you're in a group. Just hold this. I said, I can't do that. I've got vibrato. So they didn't have me as a beach boy. <laughs> but that's, that's how they started. Brian and them were copy, copying jan and dean yeah
0: yeah jan was a real real clever guy pretty amazing
1: guy. oh jan was incredible
0: going back to don't worry baby that's you know kind of uh you obviously still like the beach boys music and for that song oh yeah for you. yeah
1: oh i always loved the beach boys music yeah and uh, i, I like jan and dean's and everything it's just uh, as far as singers were concerned they weren't none of them were very good singers in the Sinatra style. That's what I call a real singer. Yeah. They couldn't sing that type of music. But I liked, liked the way they did things, too. Right. It's just I was very lucky enough to be able to sing Tony Bennett and Sinatra and all that type of stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, you could do that. And then you could do something like uh, Cutting In, like Johnny Guitar Watson.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I could I could become a black man just at the drop of a hat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know johnny guitar
1: well, watson at all yeah i played uh, an aircraft carrier in san diego with johnny
0: do you remember when that
1: was <laughs> that was about probably about 1959 or 60. wow amazing <laughs>
0: yeah johnny guitar watson he was great
1: yeah don and dewey and johnny guitar watson i used to play a lot with these guys around the san diego area and uh i, I i'd been playing guitar since i was 11 but i'd I'd uh, never really played it very well, and couldn't har- couldn't really play it hardly at all. And uh, they all, we all had the same dressing room, and so they all would teach me three chords a night. Yeah, And that, that's how I started learning to play the guitar. Well Don and Dewey and uh, Johnny Guitar Watson and them started pu- teaching me three chords a night.
0: <laughs> Best teachers, yeah yeah let uh, see maybe just throw another few other song titles at you i mean uh and pneumonia and the boogie woogie flu was that something that you would do back in the states before you came to england
1: yeah almost everything on that record was things i did in nightclubs in hollywood and i used to work with don and dewey and all the colored boys in san diego and everything making los angeles I mean, those that's all the music that i did in in the clubs
0: All right, so stuff like the masquerade is over. Yeah. Whatever will be, will be.
1: Uh Uh-oh.
0: okay, great. Yeah, there's just something great about that album, the way it all hangs together between the big ballads and then also the rockers and bluesy stuff. I mean, you show the full range of what you could do.
1: Well, that was all the way Charles put it together.
0: Yeah, that was really smart, I think. Yeah. Like Louisiana Man, you know, like that real kind of swamp.
1: Yeah, I I really miss Charles. It was... When uh, the lawsuit was over, I had to do everything that EMI told me to do. They control everything in the name of liberty.
0: Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash at Santa Dista? Then the podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Ugly Thing's friend Dave Gebro and the guest explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the many guests have included Vashti Bunyan rating her own catalogue, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow on the zombies... Members of Pavement doing a five parter on their own work. Anthony Fantano on the Velvet Underground. Bob Mayer on the Replacements. Andrew Sandoval on the Monkees. And Don Randy rating the great David Axelrod. Dave Gebro's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend that you subscribe and listen. Whole thing about you splitting your trousers and all that—I mean, how much of that was sort of press manufactured? No, again?
1: that was that was that was all—all all the press and my pants were tight and everything, uh, and they split across the knees. Yeah, I've seen. And they pictures. didn't go any further than that. But the thing is, is uh, Mary Whitehouse, who was running a thing called the Morals Committee, then. Uh, she was on my case, trying to trying to ruin me and everything. And when they when right about that time, they started the tour with me and Scylla Black. And uh, what happened was, is we were getting ready to go go on tour. Uh, Tom Jones' manager, Gordon Mills, came up and wanted to take me off the bill and put Tom on. And the people that ran the show business in those days, the, the grades and the Del fonts, said, no, we can't do that. Said, uh, this is Tom's first record, and he doesn't have a following yet, and P.J. does. We can't do that. And Mary Whitehouse jumped in and said, oh, yes, you can. Said, he's, a, he's an American Texan, and he'll get in my bad books in some way. So Gordon Mills offered the promoter of that tour Joe Collins, Joan Collins' father, a huge amount of money to throw me off and uh put Tom on in my place. And uh, they they couldn't do that, but uh Mary whitehouse said I'll I'll get him in a position to where I'll get him thrown off the tour. And she did. When when the pants split, uh she made such a big deal out of it and everything that uh the audience didn't care about the split pants. They loved it and everything. Yeah. But the show business people themselves, it was it was a way to get me not only off the tour, but they wanted to, wanted me thrown completely out of the country because they 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 were looking at it like I was an American over here taking work away from English boys. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they did it. They they managed it to where where that split pants was was a, a big thing, and they threw me off the tour and put Tom on in my place and uh that's how I stayed. That was the that was uh the end of my huge climb and the beginning of Tom's career. Right, I
0: remember there was a lot of uh yeah, there was called a lot of bad blood between between you and Tom Jones
1: and the press back then. And No no but but Tom and I wrote those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's Tom and I had never had any bad blood between us. We used <laughs> to sit in my living room making up stories we could give to the press about how much we disliked each other. (laughs) Because that was the only thing the press would print is bad news. They'd never print good news. How well we got along and everything, that wasn't any news whatsoever. It's how much we hated each other's guts, what they wanted to print. (laughs) So Tom and I would write all that stuff out and hand it in.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that kind of cues up the change of direction. After, you know, hold me in together, you started, you went you did Somewhere.
1: Yeah. There's a place for us. Somewhere a place for us. Peace and quiet and all. open hand wait for us somewhere There's a time That was when I had a, a manager that came over from Hollywood that uh, Nan Morris had set up. She was a Henry Wilson's secretary who uh, Henry had Rock Hudson and Tab Hunter and all these Hollywood greats that, uh, that Henry Wilson made. Right. And uh, I started out as an actor with Henry, but I wouldn't go to bed with him or have anything to do with him sexually, so he, he spread it around that I was a, the black widow, and, and, and no, no uh, producer or promoter or anything in Hollywood would touch me. Wow. And then, after a while, uh, he started using me not as an actor, but as a minder, as a bodyguard for Rock Hudson. So that's that's how that all came about. So I was in the Henry Wilson group as a bodyguard for the, for his homosexual actors. Yeah. And uh and Nan Mars was his secretary and she brought this guy over from UCLA and uh he started uh bec- like managing me. And uh things were going okay it was only a few months. Uh and uh, he came to my my hotel room one one afternoon and said, "D.J., I, I've I've got to leave. I'm going back to UCLA and get my degrees." Said you won't you won't work for five hundred pounds, and I, and that's all I can get for you. So I'm afraid I'm going to give up. And I said, "Well, that's that's all right. No, no, I ain't, I ain't working for no five hundred pounds." And uh, so he said, "You know, you, you don't particularly like." singing rock and roll all the time and everything said why don't you why don't you do do uh this song somewhere a ballad and I said I've never heard somewhere I said uh Johnny Mathis has already done that and uh, oh Barbara Streisand has done it yeah and uh Matt Monroe has done it beautiful beautiful versions and uh, never they never got anywhere. And he said, well, you ought to try it. So he said, I'll, I'll see you. I'm going back to UCLA. So he left. And I went out and I bought somewhere by Matt Monroe, Johnny Mathis, and Barbara Streisand. Brought them back to the hotel room and I started listening to them. And I, I couldn't figure out why they weren't hits. They were so damn good. And one night I woke up and I and I, and I said, that's it. That's the problem. They were sung too well, too beautiful. I'm going to take them down to street level. So I took it down and added a colored sound and kind of used used the uh, diction instead of somewhere, someday, somehow, somewhere. I I use a diction of a colored man. somewhere, somehow, we'll find instead of we'll find we'll find a new way of living, you know? Yeah. And and I took it down a few notches from the Broadway sound to uh, more of a New Orleans sound. Right, yeah. And I'll be damned if it didn't become a hit. Yeah. I was the only one who ever had it in the charts. The other ones were beautiful and everything, but they never made the charts because I think the the people who who like to sing sing it in the shower, their their favorite song, they couldn't sing like Matt Monroe. They couldn't sing like uh Johnny Matthews. Yes. But when I when I when I sang it and I sounded like a black man, they could sing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like a real powerhouse <laughs> belted out Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, there wasn't anything fancy about it, just there's a place for us. somewhere, a place for us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, oh, it's a fantastic version. And, and last time we were talking a little bit about the B-side, because it's one of my very favorite things you ever did, called Just Like Him, Jackie DeShannon yeah. and song. And, and, I, and I think I was saying, uh, we were saying maybe it was recorded in America, but then I looked it up some more, and I noticed it's produced by Ron Richards, so it must have been done in the U.K.
1: Well, Jackie probably did it herself in the States. If Ron produced me on it, it was done over here, yeah.
0: Yeah just it's just a fabulous yeah
1: ron, ron did most of my stuff he, he and i worked very close together yeah ron did most of the stuff with the hollies and everything
0: yeah yeah so ron did the next two albums like the one is just called pj proby which you're doing stuff like my prayer
1: that's right
0: yeah you do a great version of uh lonely teardrops on there yeah <laughs> the jackie Wilson song right
1: my when never I, when I met Jackie I, my, I got married in Hollywood and we went to Vegas to get married and we went to see Jackie in an afternoon performance in Vegas and uh, he invited me back to see him in his dressing room. And I went in the dressing room, and he was in the shower and he and he came out and he poked his head around the corner and said, "Lolithium drum, <laughs> my pillow never you know, and, and 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 he smiled and said, "That was a great version PJ. i j I'll be out in the shower in the shower in a minute Great." <laughs>
0: I love your version of uh, Mission Bell as well. That's a real cool
1: version. Yeah, that's that's what I'm opening this this October. I'm opening the show with that.
0: Oh yeah, really? You're still doing that? That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: I'm op- opening my number, my 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 set with that.
0: Nice. <laughs> and then the next one was the uh, PJ Proby in town. And then this is kind of presenting you on the cover with a different image You're
1: Oh yeah, that's that's when I was I went to Al Bennett. And I told him, Al, I want to change my image. I said, I'm I'm not a teenager or anything anymore. Christ, I I was 25 when I started getting uh, successful. And I said, well, let me me move on like Bobby Darin. I'd like to do that type of music. And he said, P.J., he said, as long as the girls are buying you, wearing a ponytail and the tight velvets and everything, you're going to stay that way. I'm not going to change you and lose money, <laughs> and so he w- he wouldn't do it, but I- so I went out and tried to do it myself, and that's why I-, I did that picture on the album with a tuxedo on in Annabelle's nightclub.
0: Oh, that's where that is. Yeah, it looks yeah. real nice and classy, and uh, yeah, you still yeah. got the ponytail, but you got your head swept back. Yeah. Oh, you're wearing a real nice tuxedo so and you know, the Yeah, I, I, the...
1: Had, I had the ponytail hidden on that one. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it ain't necessarily so.
1: It ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read from the Bible... It ain't necessarily so. David was small, but oh my! David was small, but oh my! And on there
0: you do amazing version of "It ain't necessarily so." Yeah. There, was there any particular version you modelled that
1: on? Not really. I, I think I think you'll find. Uh, I think I did that one that way because I was pretty drunk.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you took it a bit more over the top than you otherwise might yeah, have. Yeah,
1: Ron, Ron had a problem with me me and the drinks when we were recording.
0: Uh, another great record um, that I like of yours from that period, Let the Water Run Down. Yeah. Kind of a gospel was... thing with a bow diddly beat.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, let's see, the Searchers drummer.
0: Oh, Chris Curtis.
1: Yeah, Curtis uh, had had a huge, huge collection of American records and uh, invited me over to his living room one night to listen to them. And we just played record after record of all of uh, these American things that he had. And let the water run down was I think one, one by the Drifters or something a B side, yeah, or some some group some colored group, and uh, it, I'd never heard of it before, so so I took that one, yeah, and uh, recorded it.
0: Real nice version, and uh, I guess it did pretty well, right? It was uh...
1: yeah, it got in the top 40, I think.
0: Um, one record that we didn't talk about is which we should is uh, that means a lot the yeah. song that, that uh, John and Paul wrote for you. How did that come about?
1: Well, that came about, I was, went up to the ad-lib one night where everybody al- always used to go. Uh, the pub shut very early in 64, like 11 o'clock. Yeah. And 11 o'clock was when I started to go out. <laughs> yeah. So I started going to these private clubs. And one was the ad-lib. And uh, I was walking to a table and I passed and there There was All the Beatles were sitting there. So I stopped and I said, John, I said, you know, you all have written for, uh, oh, Christ, let's see now. What were the two guys?
0: Oh, Peter and Gordon.
1: Oh, yeah, Peter and Gordon. And now you've written one for a girl with blonde hair. I can't remember her name. And all these people, I said, and here you brought me all the way over here uh to do your show and you haven't written anything for me. <laughs> he said, "Well, I didn't know that you wanted anything, PJ. I'll get you one." And I said, "Well, thank you." And I walked away and went to my table and everything. And I, a week went by, and I, you know, I was kind of half joking with him. And I came back in and there was John at the table again, and I walked by I said, "Hey, hey guys, how you doing?" And he said, P.J., wait, come here a minute. I said, what do you want? He said, don't you want your song? I said, what song? He said, the one you asked me to write you. And I said, well, I I was halfway kidding. He said, well, I didn't know that. Here's your song. And he handed it to me, and I said, well, thank you, John. I said, could I get your conductor and arranger too? (laughs) He said, my God, he doesn't only want me music, he wants me conductor and all. <laughs> so he got me George Martin. <laughs>
0: so what did you think of the song?
1: I liked it, yeah. And I got to use the Beatles studio, because I, when I worked at uh, the studio, I, I was in the, in the basement.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And they were up at the top in the big studios. That's the one time I got to use the big one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you were happy with the record?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And funny enough, the boys were too.
0: Yeah, they were pleased when they heard how it came out. Yeah, were they at the session or anything like that, or was it just George Martin and the musicians?
1: No, no, they—they, they, I think they were on the road, and they—they uh, they weren't at that session. They were at a couple of my sessions, but they were down in the basement with me. Right. Paul Paul showed me how they got their sound. He said uh, they went down to the to the basement underneath these EMI studios where all the, the uh, pipes were and everything, to the heating and water pipes and everything, and they taped microphones to them. And so they not only get the studio sound, they get the sound from the whole uh, studio itself, the whole building itself. Right, yeah. So I started doing that, too. I, ta- I taped microphones to, uh, underneath the floor, too. <laughs> and, it, and it was a, it, that's how we got incredible sound.
0: Right, so that's that's the Saturday you had on
1: all this Ron Richards uh, recording. Yeah, yeah, with Ron Richards in there. A friend says that your love won't mean a lot And you knew that your love is all you
2: got
0: So after that, your kind of your British run kind of faded a little bit, and you came back to the States for a little bit, right?
1: I was thrown out of England in in uh, '66, I think it was.
0: What, ha- why was, they was that? They wouldn't
1: renew my work permit or anything. They threw me out.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: And uh, and they thought they'd finally gotten rid of me, but I came back. I went to Hollywood, and I. I got married, married and uh divorced and everything and I came back in 68.
0: Right. So in 66 when you you kind of got booted out of the UK and you went back to California. Yeah. Um and you did two albums with the uh, Calvin Carter
1: producer. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Calvin was fantastic.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit about Calvin. He was like VJ Records, right?
1: Yeah, he was a, he was a colored guy who was pretty famous with a lot of other artists, colored artists and everything. And uh, he got me the best black musicians in L.A. And um, w- we were together on, on uh, I think, one whole album.
0: Yeah, two. Well, yeah, most of Enigma. Jack Nietzsche did a couple tracks on Enigma. Yeah,
1: Jack Jack got me. I got to see Jack came to my house one day and said um, he just had uh, spoke to uh, Phil Spector and Phil had just had a big fight with, uh, with the uh, Righteous Brothers and uh, took their music away from him. And he said, uh, Phil, I've just spoken to Phil, and he's given me these this music that he had for the Righteous Brothers. And he said, would you like to do it? And I said, yes, I'd love to do it. So I I got the about three of the songs that were scheduled for the Righteous Brothers, and Jack and I went in and did those.
0: Yeah, I can't make it alone it was uh, incredible. Yeah.
1: I did both voices. I did uh, Bill Medley's and Bobby Hatfield. <laughs> yeah. uh, did both voices on there, but they didn't. Liberty Records didn't like my Bobby Hatfield, so they, on the record, they took him off. <laughs> oh, really? Took off doing him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they just took that voice off completely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they took that that, that track off completely. <laughs> And of course, it was a good. I thought it was a good, good sound. <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe it was too close to the righteous brothers. I guess.
1: Well, I think maybe you might be right there.
0: <laughs> but yeah, that's an incredible record. I can't make it alone. I mean, that's
1: just. Yeah,
0: that's one of your your great ones. I think.
1: You got those off Phil Spector.
0: Yeah, and of course Jack Nietzsche was like such an amazing arranger.
1: Oh, he was incredible. Great writer, great arranger. He did. He, I got him through Jackie DeShannon.
0: Right, because she'd done another. Before you went to England, you did one that was uh, produced by Jack, uh, a Liberty single.
1: Yeah, because uh, Jackie was working with him. Uh, I think the, the ones that the searchers had hit with over here, Jackie had over in America.
0: Right, yeah, like when you walk in the room and all that.
1: Yeah, That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, so, and, and, of course, with Calvin was when you got Nicky Hoagy. What's the story behind Nicky Hoagy?
1: Well, that's I had a big, beautiful home up in the... Beverly Hills overlooking Sunset Boulevard, and I had people over every night drinking and having a ball and swimming pool and everything. And And one night, some friends of mine came over. Um, Jim Ford, who I'd known for a long time from the Sea Witch when I was down there as a drummer, and Pat and Lolly Vegas, and uh, this is before they, they had that group.
0: Redbone, yeah.
1: Redbone.
0: But yeah, and, back to you before, and so we were yeah. sitting
1: around drinking and picking guitars and uh Pat started singing this Nicky Hokey I mean Lolly did and I said Lolly hold on he said where'd that song come from he said we just wrote it and I said well can I have it he said sure you can so I said hold on right there so I went and called Jack Nitchie and, and I said Jack I want you to hear something. And I had Lolly sing it over the phone. He said, We'll go in and cut it tomorrow. So the next day, we were in the studio and Lynn we cut uh, Nikki Hokie. Turned out to be my biggest selling record.
0: So, was that with Jack rather than Calvin?
1: Yeah, that was with Jack. Because okay. Jack came over to the house the next day and said, PJ, do me a favor, put your bourbon down. I said, why is that? He said, I want you to smoke some marijuana. I said, Jack, I don't smoke even real cigarettes, much less marijuana. I said, I've got asthma. And uh, he said, well, well just see, what, see how you feel. I said, okay, but I can tell you I'll feel nothing. So I smoked a marijuana cigarette with him. And we smoked another one. And he said, we better get to the studio. So we smoked one more as we went and got to the studio, smoked another one, and uh, you said, we bet, you better get down to record, all the boys are ready, be all these big fantastic musicians and everything. And so I went down there, and they struck up the band, and I just went, whoo, that's beautiful. I was useless that night. <laughs> and uh, so they cut the track, and I had to come in about a week later and put my vocal over it.
2: <laughs>
1: and,
0: and then, yeah, that became your biggest hit in the states, right? Um,
1: yeah, it okay. certainly did. I, I was, I was sure it would be a hit. I mean, the minute he played it in the living room, I just went, almost went through the roof.
0: Yeah. So at that point, sort of 66, 67, 68, did you think you were going to be staying back in the states, or did you always know? No, I always have,
1: knew. I, was, I always knew I was coming back to England, mainly because when you have, have a record out in England, I was closer to Europe, and everywhere else in the world, you would have to go. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to uh, ask the promoters. To bring me over from a place so far away is America, right? I was closer to work in England and Europe than I would be in America.
0: And you'd racked up several hits, you know, whereas you only had one yeah. hit in America. So you exactly, had, you were like a big star in England still.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I had all my work was over here. The only work I had in America was Shindig and all the big TV shows. I was never offered a tour or anything. You did the
0: one... The, yeah, the Dick, Dick
1: Clark, where the action, action is.
0: That was, that didn't go well, right?
1: No, I went, I went out on the stage and uh, was doing Nicky Hokey and I came to the uh, end of it and uh, at the end I said, Nicky Hokey's Tootsie, you know, I want to tag you for to me, you old book a boo you and I go, like I smoked a marijuana cigarette, you old book a boo you <laughs> and uh, Get hip to the consultation of the boula weed because that's what the song is about. Boula in 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 Cajun language is marijuana, right? <laughs> and uh, and I said to the audience, I said, "Do y'all know what I'm singing about?" And uh, they said, "Yes." I said, "You do." I said, "Well, then, for, what what is it?" And they, like, two or three thousand people stomping their feet and clapping their hands, saying. Marijuana. Marijuana. And so afterwards, Dick Clark called me in the office and said, PJ, you're fired. I said, What do you mean? He said, You can't get out there and promote marijuana. I said, I didn't promote marijuana, Dick. I asked them what it was, and the audience yelled, Marijuana. And he said, Well, you still got to go because I'm I'm the world's oldest teenager. (laughs) But <laughs> I, I, my my reputation is at stake. I can't have you doing that.
0: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so he got rid of me that night.
0: <laughs> so I'm yeah, in Kentucky. <laughs> so yeah, it seemed like maybe America wasn't the place for you. It was Europe. It was it was England.
1: Yeah, America was. Um, well, it was a bit. Uh, they they didn't have any humor. Well, the the audience did. But uh, the people running the shows and everything didn't have any humor.
0: Right. They didn't get you.
1: No. The audience did. There was nothing wrong with the audience. Yeah. Just like over here when my pants split and everything, the audience loved it. But uh, it was just an excuse for them to get rid of me as far as the businessmen were concerned.
0: Yeah. So just a couple more things. I mean, which of your records are you proudest of? Is there one particular one?
1: No, I've never had any particular record that I really uh, that I really liked more than one. It would probably be Nicky Hokey, but uh, you know, I I I love all music so much. I really don't don't get any favorites.
0: Do you listen to your records at all anymore? Or you
1: don't listen to never. You I've never listened to my records, and I never do. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Yeah, a lot and of I'm, people I'm, like I that. I try to
1: keep busy writing writing something else all the time.
0: Right. So. How would you like to be remembered, you know, after you're gone? What do you want to be remembered for?
1: Um, I've never really thought of it, but uh, I guess tenacity and uh, not letting England win. (laughs) 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 They they tried to put me in prison, everything, to get me. They've thrown me out of the country. They've never been able to get rid of me. (laughs) And now they just have to wait till I die. (laughs) Like everybody else.
0: <laughs> well, I, I hope that's not going to be for a long time.
1: <laughs> no, it won't be, and that's going to piss them off, too. <laughs> yeah. You am know, I'll be 85 in a couple of months. So that's usually a man's lifespan. Uh, but I got news for them. I still feel like I'm 18. Yeah. That really pisses them off because I acted. Right. I've never, ever grown up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: The Ugly Things podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks, that's me. You can read lots more about PJ Proby in the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine, available at the very coolest record stores and bookstores and at UglyThings.com, that's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and spread the words to your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters: Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Branigan, Stephen Schmidt, Jay Paul Reiger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support, and thank you for listening. She didn't
1: mean a word that she
2: said.